When untextbook producer Carly Shepard was growing up, she'd often find herself in groups of people who all had the same values and beliefs. So I was raised in the Christian church and I remain pretty active in the church. My inner circle is pretty homogenous just in terms of religious belief and general values and political orientation and everything that's kind of unofficially tied to religion. I really struggled with the lack of conversation within political spheres. Carly began looking for ways to break out of her bubble. She started talking to people of different religions and politics to understand why Americans are often expected to become rigid partisans. She wondered if this us versus them mentality was something truly new or if it had its roots in history. She found the work of Dr. Denis Lacorn, a French philosopher and the author of The Limits of Tolerance, Enlightenment Values and Religious Fanaticism. He kind of introduces two concepts or two different capacities for tolerance and kind of draws a line between the concept of toleration and the concept of tolerance with toleration being something that was utilized by the Catholic Church or more traditional groups um, that's kind of a begrudging allowance of diversity with intention of eventually asserting dominance. Whereas kind of leaders of new religious movements were promoting a concept of tolerance that steps beyond toleration and promotes genuine welcoming of diversity and America kind of brands itself on being a very tolerant nation. But I've been really curious to establish whether or not America is genuinely tolerant or is just practicing the act of toleration. In this episode of Untextbooked, Carly Shepard interviews Dr. Daniela Korn about why peaceful societies need to have more than two viable options to succeed. I'm Gabe Hostin, and this is Untextbooked. Stay tuned. Untextbooked. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm so appreciative, and I, I definitely admire your work. I've so enjoyed reading your book. And I, I guess the first thing I'd like to talk about is this distinction between the concept of tolerance and the concept of toleration. Yeah, so I make the distinction that toleration is more something which is negative. And in fact, if you look at the Latin root of the term tolerance or toleration, it's tolero or tolerare, it's a verb in Latin, which means put up with, bear burden. It's something which you do, but reluctantly. You can tolerate, let's say, your sovereign or king or queen. You can tolerate a minority religion, but clearly it's going to be kept inferior dissenters are not welcome, and if they are welcome, they'll have to accept the official religion, which may be the religion of the king. So that's the initial uh, definition. And it took many centuries, maybe four or maybe five centuries, to move to what I call the modern concept of tolerance, positive tolerance. And positive tolerance is, is much more than just mere toleration. Positive tolerance means that you accept all religions as equal. There's no hierarchy or no one religion that's dominate. All religions are equally accepted and respected, even though you may not agree at all with the, the ethical concept of those other religions or with their con conception of the common good. But basically, there's this idea of equality and respect. And that's only possible if you have a 
political system that has a bill of rights, that has a constitution, that have a legal order that will make sure that every possible religion is respected. The United States is basically a secular republic, but in a deeply religious society. Positive tolerance requires plurality of religion. And that's why I'm interested in, in philosophers like, like Voltaire, for instance. Voltaire, who in his philosophical letters that he wrote while visiting England, claimed that, well, you know, you don't want to have one religion in one country because that would be despotic, that would be tyranny. So ideally, a tolerant society will, of course, accept many more than one religion and hopefully respect them all equally. I, I've found America's view of, of tolerance to be a bit unique. Uh, the country kind of prides itself on being tolerant and free and welcoming. But in your writing, I was very interested, even early on um, in the foundations of the United States, it seemed that there were some contradictions in claims to be religiously free and tolerant. You, you shared the example of, of John Ruggles, who was prosecuted for blasphemy in the early 1800s after declaring that Jesus Christ was a bastard and his mother was a prostitute. And just for, for publicly declaring this, um, the court decided that he could be prosecuted for blasphemy. This seemed to contradict the First Amendment right to freedom of religion and kind of introduced that idea initially that maybe America isn't quite as free and tolerant as it is on paper. So this ruling took place a couple hundred years ago, and I'd love your insight kind of on America's view of tolerance historically, but I'm, I'm also curious if you think we've made progress since then, and if you think America is kind of the tolerant nation it claims to be and claims to be historically and kind of where we've, where we've transitioned since that case of John Ruggles. Yeah, historically, America for me is an example of what I call colonial tolerance. That is to say, tolerance is not widespread. It's not all over. You have the intolerant Puritans, after all, in New England who would expel the Baptists, who would expel the, the Quakers and kill uh, the witches of, of Salem. Then you have the extreme tolerance of Pennsylvania, but that's an exception. And it's because the guy was running Pennsylvania, William Penn, a Quaker, was by definition tolerant. Uh, and then you had, for instance, what became known today as New York and New Jersey, but earlier was the New Netherlands, run by a Dutch director, Peter Stuyvesant. That Dutch director was not tolerant at all. Uh, for him, the established church was the uh, Dutch Reformed Church, and he expelled or even arrested Quakers, even though Quakers tried to, to be accepted like a normal religion. So it took a while for the United States to be truly tolerant, but it does happen with the American Constitution. And uh, there are uh, very important statements by Jefferson talking to the, the Danbury Baptists um, community or George Washington talking to the Jewish community of Newport, insisting that you know those religions are, are equal and equally protected and the state is going to be neutral. It's not going to interfere in financing one religion rather than another, and and uh, and that's those are very important statements. So today, what happens today? Well, is the United States, in terms of religious tolerance, very advanced in in that domain? I would say, yes, 
even though you still have cases that deal with intolerant moments in American histories, cases that deal with exemptions. Should, should you make an exemption, for instance, for a Native American tribe that uses peyote in a ceremonial way, and the Supreme Court decided that, no, you cannot do that. It violates a general law. The general law prohibits the use of drugs. But that decision of the Supreme Court has been overturned by parliaments, by the legislatures. Another good example, which I don't mention of the book, but which is quite interesting, I think, from a European perspective, is the uh, Centuria religion in Miami. I'd say a mix of Afro-Cuban religion that mixes uh, African gods with Catholicism, and you have animal sacrifice in that religion. And so the question is, should we make an exemption in a, in a state, Florida, which prohibits cruelty towards animals? And the Supreme Court, in a very interesting decision, the Supreme Court says, well, yes, we should make an exemption because that's part of their tradition, their ritual, however cruel. And we should make an exemption because, on the other hand, hunting is not prohibited uh, or killing uh, cows is not prohibited in, in Florida. So in that case, it's not abnormal to make an exemption. But if the law was general and prevented all forms of hurting animals, then there would not be an exemption for the Santeria church. And so you see, uh, religious freedom goes very far in the United States. Uh, but there are limits to that. And I think the best example is a Trump's ban on visitors from seven Muslim nations. That was clearly something that targeted a particular religion and most likely violated the First Amendment. So here's an interesting modern example suggesting that, well, religious tolerance is, is far from being achieved, completely achieved in the United States. Yeah. Is there any society, past or present, that you've seen that you feel um, gets tolerance right in their attitudes and in their in their policies? Is there a society or community you can think of that is is a model of what positive tolerance looks like? Well, you know, with the limitations that we talked about, the United States is close to a model. Uh, Britain, oddly enough, is also close to a model, even though it still has a official church, but Everything is as if it was a secular society. And for instance, there's no ban on the hijab or even the niqab or the burqa in, in, in England. When you go to England, uh, you could you customs agents. Custom agents have could wear a hijab. That's fine. Police women could have a hijab, but you certainly would not see that in France, which is much more restrictive and punitive of minority religion, but not just any minority religion, newly arrived religion. That's where the limits is. New immigrants are disliked, and that's very often where you would see limits of tolerance. But I, I find it disturbing in the, the ban on Muslim that was ordered by Trump. Uh, it targets not just a single religion, but a rel relatively new foreign religion that arrived in the United States. On the other hand, in the United States, you have also American-born religions like the Mormon or uh, Jehovah's Witness and so on, the religion that were born and developed in the United States and which are quite accepted today. Uh, there's no restriction against those religions. So the United States is more open to 
all existing religions, and by the way, to non-religion, non-believers are also accepted as well. I mean, there's an equality there, and we have many important decisions at the Supreme Court that say you cannot privilege one religion over another, or one religion over non-belief, which is very important to for the youth in the United States, where non-belief is, is rising uh, very fast, about 30-40% of millennial and younger people in the United States. But if you take a long historical perspective, what's fascinating about philosophers like Locke, Voltaire, like Abbé Reynal, who wrote the history of the two Indies in, in France, is that they're very much aware that the West is not this beautiful thing that is tolerant as opposed to a barbarian East or non-West, because the, the worst wars of religion, um, for instance, the Thirty Years' War, uh, which killed between five and ten million people, uh, those are the most horrible example in the world that exists, and they're much worse than other examples that you may pick up on, uh, in the non-West. And, and that's why the modern concept of tolerance, in fact, developed as a reaction against those horrible religious wars that existed both in the West, but also in the non-West with the conquistadors, for instance, uh, or the mistreatment of, of Indians. Uh, at the time, people thought that maybe Native Americans did not even have a soul. So those important debates fed the Enlightenment discussion about what is true tolerance. And it's not with a sword or with fire that you're going to solve problems. It's by persuasion. Persuasion is the only weapon you should be able to use. And if you disagree with someone else's religion, well, try to persuade him or her that maybe there's something else that's true. But that's the only weapon. Hence the importance of free speech. Free speech goes with persuasion and tolerance. And if you want to use the sword and the fire to force people to convert, well, uh, you'll never get going to get good results. It's going to be a fake conversion and it's not going to solve any problem at all. What do you think our steps are as a society beyond living out tolerance individually? What can we be doing to get closer to that utopia? Well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, there are several types of tolerance. Uh, my emphasis is on religious tolerance, but there's also something else which I define as multicultural tolerance, which is also something important, uh, which has to do with um, race, ethnicity, gender. It's a different kind of tolerance, but it's also important uh, as a notion of tolerance. So um, in the United States, there is progress, but you have other forms of intolerance that are maybe not directly religious, but racial intolerance. The rise of white supremacists in the United States, uh, or even domestic terrorism, that's an extreme form of intolerance, which is not religious, but it's racial intolerance. Uh, and, and that's also something that has to be dealt with. That's why you have religious tolerance, but also multicultural tolerance. And uh, maybe religious tolerance is nearly achieved, I would say, in the United States with a few exceptions, whereas multicultural tolerance is, is far from being achieved because of those problems with uh, racism and domestic terrorism. And it's always existed, but uh, the fact that white supremacists, neo-Nazis are still functioning in the United States is uh, 
a cause of, of concern, of course. And they also attack mosques, they attack synagogues, uh, they attack a variety of people who belong to you know, religious communities. And that's, that's a matter of concern. Uh, not just in the United States, that happens in England, that happens in, uh, in France and, and in Belgium, we have those problems as well. So, so your book was originally published in 2016, yes, in, in French, and, and then was translated and published again in English a few years later. And I found it really eye-opening. In your, in your closing remarks, you commented that even in that brief window of time between the publication in French and the publication in English, some events took place that continued to fuel and shape the conversation about tolerance. So then, the, then your English version of The Limits of Tolerance was published in 2019. And I'd venture to say that even since 2019, we've encountered some issues in our society that have demonstrated a lack of tolerance. So I guess my question for you then is, what do you think is our, our largest current threat to tolerance? What are the limits of tolerance that we are encountering today? I would say that the real danger is not so much intolerance, but it's self-censorship. For instance, a, a typical example, there's a, a very nice book written by Jet Klassen at Yale University Press on the uh, cartoons of Charlie Hebdo, which were so controversial in France and led to the murder of 12 journalists in 2011. So you have this wonderful book that explains the history of the cartoons in Denmark, in France, and the trials and, uh, uh, and the reaction in different Muslim countries. and Yet uh, the book decided to publish the text, but not the cartoons. Uh, so you have a book on cartoons that are never to be seen, which is astonishing. And when the cartoons that mocked Mohammed in the Charlie Hebdo, uh, the, the French journal, were discussed, debated, they were never published in the mainstream press in the United States on the ground that you didn't want to hurt the feeling of this and that religious group, and yet the same media had talked about and published Peace Christ, for instance, which is a, a mocking work of art where Christ is dipped in the urine of, of the artist. And it's shocking, but that's part of satire. And so uh, some caricatures are accepted and others are not. Why this kind of self-censorship? Now, in the United States, it's, it's complicated, of course, because free speech is almost without limit if you consider the First Amendment, in public. But if you're a private club or private media or private uh, university, then you can have restriction of speech or speech codes. But if you're a public university like UC Berkeley, for instance, no, you cannot have limits on, on speech, however complicated and costly uh, that is. So in the United States, free speech goes very, very far, and that includes the possibility of mocking or even insulting someone else as long as violence was not there, was not visible. But it's hard to understand, of course. And the ultimate limit of free speech is the kind of speech that would immediately and intentionally provoke violence. I mean, that's the kind of speech you probably uh, want to ban. And that's what happened, for instance, in the a Charlottesville, a Charlottesville Unite the Right rally, which brought together uh, neo-Nazis, supremacists, armed militia, and progressive students and families. The pretext was uh, a statue, you know, the Lee, Robert E. Lee, should we keep a statue 
in the middle of the city of Charlottesville or not. So here you had people clearly violent. They had weapons, they insulted their opponents, they used Vastika, Nazi songs, and then opponents wanted to block them. You had a clash, and so should such a violent expression of different viewpoints be allowed? And the answer is, that, well, yes, if you can maintain order. But if you're unable to maintain order, if you don't have a police force that can separate the two camps that said ahead of time that they're going to, to beat the other one, they're going to have problem. And you know what happened? A woman was murdered by a neo-Nazi um, alt-right driver, um, murdered on purpose. So that's what you want to avoid. And, and there's this legal concept of imminent violence. But what does that mean, imminent violence? How do you prove that it's imminent? Who judges that? And that's, uh, that's where the problem is, you know, and, and that's what happened in Charlottesville. There was imminent violence, and yet local people didn't see it that way. And uh, the Capitol insurrection is another example of protesters. They should be allowed to say what they want to say, uh, including challenge the election. But clearly, they went a little beyond. So there you have another, you know, what they say is fine, even though you may dislike it, uh, but uh, it's part of free speech. But then when they go beyond and use violence to impose your ideas, that's where the problem is. And tolerance basically is trying to, it's very hard, trying to convince people that violent slogan or violent language, or that's fine, but you should not go beyond that. Uh, and of course... Uh, an outsider may not understand that uh, the subtlety that you know a, a violent term or violent expression doesn't necessarily move to a violent action. I don't believe in the the power of words are so powerful that a certain word will lead to an action. No, it's not as simple as that. I, I think your mention of violence um, is something super profound, uh, kind of that tolerance and violence don't coexist, I think is something um, definitely to be reminded of when we examine limits of tolerance in, in modern society. Um, one, one of my personal favorite things about studying philosophy uh, is, is kind of reading through in person and highlighting those one-line bits of wisdom. I think philosophers give those so well. Is there any any statement or quote about tolerance that you uncovered while you were writing the limits of tolerance or, or elsewhere in your studies that you wouldn't mind leaving us with? Well, there's Voltaire's saying on, on whether you should have one, two, or more than two religion, I think. Quote, if there were only one religion in England, and he's visiting England at the time, 19th century, there would be danger of despotism if there were two religions, they would cut each other's throats. But there are 30, and they live in peace and happiness. End quote. Mm. Professor Denis Lacorn is author of The Limits of Tolerance, Enlightenment Values and Religious Fanaticism. Professor Lacorn, where can people find more of your work? There are a couple of talks that I gave in, in English that are available on the web, a short presentation of the book, The Limits of Tolerance. So there's that, could be useful. Dr. Denis Lacorn is a senior research fellow at the Paris Institute of Political Studies. 
Carly Shepard is a freshman at Baylor University. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Entman. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer. Untextbook is a project of Got History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening.